We operate in a regulated industry where you know we have to be safe. There isn't a choice about, oh, maybe we'll be safe or not. You, you, you have to be safe. You have to be reliable. You have to evidence that you can recover. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In this episode, we flip the script and put Brian Hayes, our Senior Director for Financial Services Industry Vertical at VMware, in the guest seat. As you can expect, we covered a breadth of topics, and as you can imagine by now, we had quite a bit of fun whilst recording. So, no more teasers, let's get on with it. Welcome, Brian. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for inviting me along on the other side of the desk. <laughs> so, look, yeah, Brian, can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? Yeah. So, I'm very lucky that in a nutshell, I, I lead a team that really is responsible for driving the amplification and relevance of VMware and VMware technology in financial services. So, that team focuses on principally you know, a number of things around producing industry-specific thought leadership materials. We work heavily with our partners and ISVs to create business outcomes that are valued by our customers, not just from a technical perspective. And of course, we spend you know, some time working with our sales teams, helping them to engage into our customers. So from a career perspective then, how did you get started and how did you end up here? It's a long road, Matthew, because I'm of a certain vintage. So it's long and windy. It's long and winding road, yeah. So I, st- I actually started my work life out many, many years ago in, in the telco industry and networks, and then had a brief spelling consulting for what is now called PwC. In that time, it was called Coopers and Librand. And then from Coopers and Librand, I went into work for in, into financial services, and I really stayed there up to the point where I joined VMware. So probably 30 years-ish in and around financial services in one way or another. Wow. So were you planning on this as your career path? What did you want to do when you left school? When I was at school, I think I had desires to sort of, I think, you know, for some reason I liked the idea of going into law, probably because I wanted to wear a wig. Um, and, <laughs> different story, different, uh, different story, and different day. <laughs> and an, an architect. That's what. That's in, in, when I was at school. That's really where where I I would hope oh, I wow. wanted to go. But like most people, what that transpired to be is what I, what I really wanted to be was a comedian or a rock, or a singer in a rock and roll band, and that never worked either. So I got in. I was in my sixth form, and like most people, was heading to university. And as part of our sixth form studies, we we were asked to apply to certain companies for for roles as practice and go for interviews, and and I was a bit stumped really because the first interview I ever went for that I that I went for an aptitude test and technical test and all those wonderful things in those days, and it was for BT, and BT slightly shocked me because at the end of the half day they said right we'd like to offer you a job. And that was never really that was never really part of the academic learn how to be interviewed. So I went home and spoke to my parents about it. And you know, university was you know down one course, and and going to join BT was a different, a very different thing I hadn't considered. But it was a three year engineering and academic apprenticeship. So it was the longest apprenticeship in the UK at that time because you did a mixture of specific engineering development with BT and, and engineering in those days just for the listeners involved things that whirled round and round and buzzed and clicked. It wasn't, you know, it, it was electromechanical. It wasn't electronic. But I decided to do it. And so I joined BT and really th- that grounding in BT, I think, set me up for, in a way that I hadn't really thought about too much later on in life in terms of you would do an academic period at college in those days they were called polytechnics and then you would go and do effectively six to eight weeks in the field with a different group of people so you were changing the people that you were working with every quarter you were changing in the the sort of areas that you were learning about both practically and academically every quarter and you did that for three years and i thoroughly enjoyed it wow okay okay so then looking back what would you say had been your career-defining moment? 
So this is hard, right? Because I think there are many career-defining moments, and they tend to not just be moments, but people that you work around. And I would be disrespectful if I didn't acknowledge that I've worked for some really incredibly motivational people. As a career-defining moment, I think... So when I left PwC, I went to work for an investment bank, and I knew what I was going in to do. And the job was to build a trading floor because I'd been involved in doing some of that stuff when I was at PwC for, for a different company. But this training floor was in Japan. So I was about, probably about 28, 29, and they just literally flew me out to Japan and said, right, Brian, effectively, they said, Brian, can you move the trading floor from one side of Tokyo to the other? Can you have it done by this date? And looking back, that was mad. <laughs> a, because of my age, A, because of the experience that I didn't have, but I never knew what I couldn't do. So it was exciting. It was fun. And the reason it was the defining moment was because it sort of exemplifies my willingness to step into something, not necessarily knowing exactly how I'm going to do it. So learning fast would be the, co- the common sort of the, the modern phrase for that. But going to work in a country where English is not necessarily that well, certainly my English, it, it wasn't well understood, the cultural barriers to navigate, and then driving and working incredibly hard to, to hit a deadline. And I think that really set me up with you know, what, what I've done in my career ever since, which is I've, I've led large functional teams globally. I've worked all over the world now in, in terms of Brazil, India, I've lived in New York twice. But what I learned in that first exercise, and, and probably back to BT in terms of constant change, it enabled me to work with people who whose language wasn't necessarily, the first language wasn't English, and it left an imprint on me in terms of how you work with people and how you collaborate with people and, and most importantly, how you communicate with people. So I think that's probably the, the career-defining moment. What's been your proudest moment from a professional perspective? This is a really good question as well, because I could point to things that I've built that have subsequently been rebuilt and are knocked down. <laughs> so systems that have been replaced, trading floors that have been long replaced, buildings that you know have been retired, you know, networks that have been replaced. But actually, having yes, I've built you know really interesting things, and I've run really different types of challenging programs of work and operational responsibilities, and then all the spotlight that that creates and stresses. But you get it done through people, and most of those things, if not all of them, are temporary. But actually, what's what's always been important to me, and and still remains important to me, is the relationships I have with people. So I, I can still WhatsApp someone who was a grad for me twenty five years ago and have a joke with them. I can, you know, I've mentored people who have, you know, exceeded me in terms of their career development and gone far beyond that. And for me, genuinely, that what that's what makes me proud. I didn't think it was. I think there's a time in your career when you from an ambition perspective and it's like, oh, look at me, what I've done. But actually what's important now is that is the relationships with people. And so I'd say my proudest moment is developing people. I, I can see that. And, and the many conversations we have, these are things that you bring through. So, yeah, interesting. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So last time we talked with Joe Bagley about what he's seeing and hearing across the customer groups that he's meeting with. And then from your perspective and talking with and being exec sponsor for some of the largest financial services companies in this region and the world, what are you seeing and hearing as top of mind? What I hear is very consistent. They may describe things in a different way relevant to that company and the challenges that company has. But I think the challenges are well documented from an external pressure perspective. Everyone wants to go faster. No one wants to be slower. Everyone must be secure and reliable and resilient. And we'll probably talk a bit more about that because it's a regulated industry. Everyone wants to be simplified. Everyone wants standardization. No one's not saying that. The challenge is how they achieve it. How are they able to execute their plans? Then that's the key. And to be fair, companies like VMware and the conversations that you and I are both involved in, it's, it's not what and why, it's how do we help, right? How do we help them go faster to the cloud? You know, what cloud? I did an article recently and it was in the press in the US and it was talking about it's a marathon. And actually, having thought about it, it's an extreme marathon or an, it's an extreme 
Iron Man thing because you've got to be so skilled and so good at so many different things to be successful that it's it, there's no silver bullet. Um, so my, our customers and talk about you know the quality of their capabilities, how they meet their customer expectations, how can they scale, how do they make the right decisions around technology that gives them flexibility. They must be reliable, but you know they've got you know lots of ambition and they want innovation but they don't always necessarily have the capability to execute it and and i don't mean they haven't got bright people i mean they just haven't got enough bright people because the talent is not necessarily there in in great swathes of people so if you mix all that in and i'm and i've sort of gone down a path here but if you mix all that in you know what do they talk about they talk about the need to modernize their applications they talk about the need you know whether you call it core banking modern banking or payments and I think payments to most people is a misunderstood thing in terms of the complexity. Obviously, regulated cybersecurity and compliance, the need to satisfy your own inter- internal control functions as well as those that sit outside of the regulation, and particularly if you're if you're across multiple countries, that what that means. Lots of conversation around data, securing it, how do they maintain it, how do they sustain it, how do they monetize it, and then you know, apart from all of the obvious things around, well, it would be really good to do all of that for the least possible cost and to go as fast as we possibly can. There's the skill set and and the need to develop a continuously improving skill set to undertake all of that. So not much then? No, no, it's, it's never going to be a boring job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's kind of explore a, a few of those in a bit more detail. I kind of like to start with, is that area of application modernization and whether that's becoming cloud first or eliminating the mainframe or what, wherever that really lands, how do you best define that kind of app modernization aspiration? You've mentioned a number of things in there, right? So, so aspirationally, people want to build applications that are fit for purpose. Most incumbent organizations have far too many applications and they've engineered in, not necessarily unknowingly, a level of complexity that drives a need to back to that simplification and conversation later on. So you'll get some of the largest incumbent banks that have got literally thousands of applications and they don't know necessarily how to turn those off. So understanding your application landscape, understanding what applications need to go where to give you the best capability to develop your future functionality is part of that process. If you're a challenger bank or if you, you know, why would you, why would you build it? Why, why not buy it? And if you're going to build it to create a differentiated service, then you would probably build it native in the public cloud, allowing for recovery to a private cloud to satisfy various different regulatory requirements. But aspirationally, it's understanding those applications, understanding what the applications perform, whether they're core functional applications or transaction-based or or around the systems of record, which leans into a conversation around the mainframe, or are they customer-facing and drive your customer engagement and your customer satisfaction? Mainframe technology, you know, the demise of mainframe technology has been talked about for years, and it's realistically, it's not necessarily gone in that direction. I think people have fine-tuned the mainframes to perform the, the core function or the system of record-type capabilities, and they've made great swathes in in removing some of the obstacles through containerization and some of that type capability to enable businesses to develop new functionality. But most of the banks that we will talk to and anyone listening to this will talk to, will still run you know, a vast amount of their processing on what would have been referred to as legacy-based technology. The legacy-based technology, I add, that they're probably spending more on now than they've ever done. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's not that that's legacy lockdown, you're not spending on it. It's actually, it's still something you're maintaining and, and developing on. And there's a, an expression I heard was, today's fresh code is tomorrow's tech debt. But, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's just on a completely different scale when you think about those systems that are already out there that, that are running the bank. And now you don't hear it as much. <laughs> you don't hear people standing up saying, I mean, we, we've heard it all in our careers in terms of we're going to be one cloud, we're going to get rid of mainframe technology. Actually, that's, that's not the important narrative anymore. 
the important narrative is how do I provide a capability to my development community and therefore to my business to, to drive its business? You know, and, and I need to do that by providing something that's trusted and reliable and robust and resilient and scalable burst and you know, flexible because I don't know what decision I'm going to make in six months' time because I don't yet know what that problem is. So I need something that's going to be a non-regret decision in order to give me that flexibility because I don't want to make a decision now that I go back to the CFO and said, you know that decision I made six months ago and we invested all that money. Well, had I known what I know now, I would never have made that decision. We don't want to be in that position. No one does. Yeah, interesting term. Interesting term. So in the conversations then you're having, again, I'm a little bit of leading the witness here, but going back two or three years, everybody was saying they were cloud first and they were all in with one. You know, from those conversations that have taken that you know have taken place and 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 the reality, what are you hearing more more often than not now? So, if you go back probably five years, so where that was the boss. 2018, 2017, around that, that, that era. Cloud is made to look simple. And, and companies, you know, with the aid of PowerPoint, made it look very simple to adopt, right? What's the learning over the past five years? Oh, it's harder. <laughs> I'm slightly disillusioned with now I've got more choice and more complexity than I've ever had. I've actually engineered in complexity. I've actually engineered in, engineered in cost growth I didn't anticipate. So it's now harder, it's more complex, it's slower. So businesses over the past couple of years, and, and some now, are now revisiting that one cloud and, and, and looking at, you know, what's the right workload to go in the right cloud to give the right price, to give the right benefit. And that's a different, it's a much more pragmatic, practical way of looking at what you need to do. And, and, and you know, we now talk about being cloud smart. And effectively, that's what that is. It's saying, where do I put my workload to get the right outcome for me? I, I think one of the things that organizations have discovered abruptly is that just lifting and shifting and pushing into a cloud means you've still got the same problem. You've just shifted it to the cloud. And actually, those people that have got real bad experience on costs have tended to have done that. And the only way that you're really going to get those costs that the PowerPoint and slide were suggested is if you refactor the applications. And lots of organizations can't do that. It's too yeah. expensive to do that. So it's a, it is a conundrum. And it's one of those things that we talk about, but you know, that, that's how I see it. So I was going to ask you, you know, is getting off the mainframe ever going to happen? But it sounds like that's not the conversation now. I think the answer to that is the main, getting off the mainframe is not the imperative. <clears throat> Whereas people perceived getting off the mainframe did everything for you, now it's not about getting off the mainframe. It's about building capability such that we can we can build new capability for our you know, new functionality. We can build new capability for our developers to get as much and sort of you know, an Amazon type experience as possible. So, you know, they want to be able to scale quickly. They want you know, do we have to do on, you know, on day two operations of changing IP addresses, they want to do, you know, real time load balancing changes, etc, etc, etc. That's not a mainframe problem. <laughs> if, if you've got 20,000 developers, with all due respect, taking the mainframe out is not going to make them make much difference to their lives. And that's my cat wailing in the background. Just so I put. That and normally we hear your dog, not your cat. Well, so the, the dogs are sitting there quiet at the moment, but the cat's obviously showing off. But chewing mind. on the cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> the reason the cat is me wailing is because it's sitting in the uh, clutches of a ridgeback. <laughs> actually, actually, they're very friendly, so that's not true. Going a little further with that, then. So, where do you see app dev, and more interestingly, DevSecOps in FSI? You know, is it just on modern platforms? Does it incorporate the mainframe? Is it an end-to-end -end thing? Is it a horses for courses specific app thing, or, or you know, or is it really uh, you know embedded in for for most of the customers that you talk with? So, if you think about it's almost like change your age, right? I can remember it was just DevOps when we didn't have DevSecOps. <laughs> so, you know, and I think the fundamental difference here over the past few years is that it is the absolute necessity, non-negotiable, has to be engineered into the DNA requirement for security. Whereas before, and you and I, you know, have been around long enough to know when security was, did you put a double padlock on the door? 
right? You know, that security was the last thing you considered as you effectively release code. It, it wasn't necessary. And unfortunately, we live in a society now where security absolutely has to be key. So yes, I think in terms of DevSecOps and that need to to integrate your security architecture and design much, much earlier into your code. I mean, you could argue it's called set DevOps now, right? Because that's where you want to start. You want to start with that security model that's built or that enables you or provides the guide rails for all your future development across any of the clouds or even your mainframe that you currently do. So there's a little bit of retrofitting, isn't it? And as you said, looking back at what you've built over the past 18 months is tomorrow's legacy. Well, you, you've got to make sure that that's still reliable and still robust and still capable of meeting its operational needs. But yeah, absolutely, sadly, do we live in a world now where it, security is a non-negotiable. I had a conversation with someone recently and it was we were talking about security. And Tom Kellerman, as, as we both know, used to talk about the fact that, you know, castles are built to keep people out and prisons are built to keep people in. And actually what you see now is effectively using that view, we build prisons to secure our data so no one can take it out of the organization. But you are as secure as the environment that you build. So I, I you know, whether you you know, we shut all your windows, shut all your doors, metaphorically, et cetera, et cetera. But security is now absolutely integral into what you do. And someone's drilling? And, someone, and someone's drilling. He's probably found the cat. I can't really say that. You might have to delete that because <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get protests. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I have no idea where it's coming from. It's outside. So. It's, it used to be. It used to always be your house. It, used, that, it oh. always used to be my house. Now, maybe they've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they're working their way down the road. So thinking about this whole area around application modernization, uh, modern banking, being fit for purpose for the 21st century and, and all that other stuff and, and, you know, secure and what have you, what approach have you seen to be most successful and, and how do you know when it's done? Great question. R- really good question. So let me answer it in reverse. How do you know when it's done? If you are presuming it's done, that's a bad place to be because it will never be done. <laughs> and, and, and the reason being is because the, it's done based upon the set of expectations and requirements you had at the start. Therefore, you assume that the world has stopped and you've caught up and it's going to stay stopped. It's not. It's going to evolve continuously in front of you. So I think the expectation, we and we talk about digital transformation, which is a specific you know, I want to digitize things. I want to I want to create digital capability, and I want to make things smarter and and leverage technology. How you you leverage that technology and that continued transformation is is not going to stop. You know, humanizing the technology, one might argue, or you know, is going to be one of the biggest challenges. So I've got all this fantastic technology now. How do I create the capability? How do I enrich the customer experience? How do I create more capability or more? more opportunity for the customer, particularly in banking, how do I do that? I, I don't think it's it's ever going to stop. What does good look like? What do we see out there? I think there are organisations out there, particularly in financial services, and if you if you asked the CIO 10 years ago, they'd have probably said, I want to get rid of my mainframe and I want to be a fintech, right? Um, yeah. And there are banks out there now that by scale and by capability – you know, raw talent capability, the ability to execute that muscle strength. There are banking organisations and financial services organisations now that mimic technology companies and arguably are in front of some of the technology companies because they made those changes 15 years ago. They didn't wait to be told by a technology company or any consulting firm, this is the way to go. They had the smarts and went, we're going to go that way. So there are absolutely huge organizations out there that operate like a tech company and they they don't stop they don't rest on their laurels they continuously challenge themselves to go and do more and innovate really innovate and try to push the envelope further and further and further so earlier you said payments and payments is misunderstood go on then what's your what's your take on payments well i think to, to most people payments is so, <laughs> is one of those things that just happens by convenience to be there but Actually, recognizing that payments is the, you know, is really driving 
a lot of that change that we now see in the industry when we talk about modern core banking or you know it's modern core banking and payments because payments actually drives it if you think about the way we pay things now we don't write checks and we don't write checks anymore we really use cash so we do all of our payment and all of our checking on our mobile device that would have been inconceivable 25 years ago so the convenience and speed at which we're able to conduct transactions, the security requirements that go with that, customers are demanding more efficient, more effective ways to, to do that, as well as the banks themselves in terms of we won't go down the path of you know the cross-border issues and all of those wonderful things in terms of global payment systems and how they operate. But you know, the the, the future of payments is is going to be driven by you know more mobile payments. More and more and more and more. I, I don't know what the stats are, but I would imagine there's been an incremental increase in those payments year on year on year. We're now starting to see more of the central banks talking about CBDCs. Reluctantly or otherwise, they've got to get in front of it and talk about cryptocurrencies and what does that mean in terms of blockchain technology? You know, What does that enable them to do from an intermediary perspective? What does that enable the bigger banks to do from a, a, a transaction perspective? More contactless payments, so whether that be wearables, whether that be tapping debit cards, tapping your mobile phone, you know, who'd have who'd have assumed that you was able to get on a train simply by tapping your mobile phone, and then you're getting to proximity and all those wonderful things, so you won't even know what's going on, and then it's almost impossible to read a, a press article or or read the press or not have a conversation about artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies and how are they going to drive a different type of payment capability how are they going to drive a different personalized experience what are they going to do to be proactive in that space and then if you then say okay how do you do that and look at things like open banking which is the regulatory side and and, and regulatory side on open banking could be to create a level playing field to create more market opportunity it could be so that's the that's when open banking is driven by the the regulatory view market view is well we're all really good canada's a great example actually the the, the trust in the, in the canadian banking system is as high as it's ever been but actually the regulator wants to create a market driven open banking capability so that you know more and more fintech type capability payments particularly third party providers etc 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 whether that be b2b b2c or the payment market itself but they want to encourage that friction in the market to create competition to create better outcomes for the customers parking that for a minute then and, and i think you said you know where cyber is now and we've had a few sessions with tom kellerman which were always interesting and ended up we're going to reconfigure things in our homes as a result. Um, but, you know, the conversations with Tom always left us thinking, oh my goodness, this is this is massive. Are you seeing that kind of acceptance of cyber and the role of the CISO being um, that much more critical? I, I think you already kind of alluded to it in the DevSecOps question. But you, how much is it where cyber's just thought of as table stakes and someone else's problem versus actually those are the conversations people are getting in front of you for? So without doubt, over the past, well, let's say five years to three years to, to date. So five years ago, most people were just playing catch up on their cyber. And it was one of those things that said, OK, we need to have a cyber security policy. We need to run pen tests. We need to do, you know, ethical hacking. We need to do all of that stuff and, and almost tick a box. And then three years ago, I would say it moved into a much more serious discussion, which is, you know, we need to be much better. We need to really be able to, you know, understand how we would respond to a cyber attack or to a Trojan horse or to any of those things that Tom Petrified is talking about more proactively to the point where we're at today, where cybersecurity has to be within the DNA. It can't be... Did we check this against the, the the three boxes we need to we need to sign off for security? It's, it can't be that, and that's why I said you know actually I think set DevOps is probably the way it will end up going because the guide rails that they'll provide will be you know and it's hard and and sometimes that's seen as being restrictive, but it's not because we operate in a regulated industry where you know we have to be safe. There isn't a choice about or maybe we'll be safe or not. You you, you have to be safe. You have to be reliable. You have to evidence that you can recover. So, you know, 
you and I both know that, you know, from a regulatory perspective, that you can run a degraded service for a period of time should you have a major outage or an incident. But if you're out for a prolonged period of time, and you know, I'm, I'm not talking months, I'm talking two weeks, you don't exist. So there's the risk paradigm. <laughs> I've got two weeks to get everything back as an organisation. Otherwise, I, you know, I, I'm putting a. Well, it's not even a for sale sign, right? Because it'll be, you know, that's it. You're gone. Yeah. So I think that awareness has increased. I think the role of the CISO to, is not only to drive what is a very complex technical conversation in terms of protection and recoverability and resilience and to evidence it, and, and then you get into the whole conversation about tech debt and evergreening. But I think the real challenge has been for the CISO to go and talk to the board in the level of language that the board understands that you know is suitably you know, worrying for the board to take it seriously. Well, look, I realise the first set of questions I asked were about dev, and then I've asked the set question. So I'm trying to work out what my ops question can be to, uh, to get the three. Well, yeah, so, 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 <laughs> you know, so ops is one of these spaces where there's great opportunity to use technology and automation to drive more efficiencies, not just efficiencies, but be more effective. So whether that be self-healing, whether that be predictive whether that be you know the way that you run problem management and recovery, you know that ops is not exempt from the same challenges that you know the sec and the dev are. It needs to modernise itself to create that capability. It, it's, there's no point you know having the greatest security model in the world and the greatest ability to deploy it didn't develop. And then your operations is a laggard. You, you know, it's got to be there at the same capability. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, I, I see there's a huge opportunity ahead in the op space around uh, the, the the whole large language models and and AI and where that's going. And and you know, it's kind of like having AI on your side to help you troubleshoot. Yeah, because you know, you and I both know you get into something's broken. What changed? Yeah. And then where's the network team? Get get on the log analyzers, start looking at what's flowing through the network, what you know, start working through what's gone wrong, what's different than it was previously. And if the machine can do a lot of that stuff for you ahead of time, it just shows you where to look faster. Mm. And, you know, I, I think the potential for ops with the developments that are that are taking place now, it's pretty exciting times. Yeah. It it did make me giggle because you said get the networks team on, because that was the first port of call for every outage call. You know, yeah, get the, can you get the network team on and what's changed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and, and without upsetting people, you didn't typically go and get the architects. No, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I had an architect on a 3 a.m. payments outage call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so let's change it then and talk data. And you said data strategy and data is the, you know, a, a big topic of conversation. Yeah, where do those conversations tend to go? So what we have seen, and, and it, you know, banks sit on a huge pile of data. <laughs> and and yeah. the question now is, and, and they are obliged to and regulated to retain that data, and that's costly. And with the advent of you know, further digital transformation, how do they then use that data to create new products and services that are personalized or efficient or capable for their customers? And to do that, I think, you know, what we now see, you've seen, you know, chief data officers, you know, come forward in the roles. And I think this is about, you know, a, an organisation, not necessarily a bank, any organisation, the need to define its objectives and of what it wants to achieve with its with its data. Is it, it's all of these, right? It's all about in customer engagement and customer satisfaction. But it's also about how do I use that data to drive my risk reduction? Can I use that better in KYC or AML? Can I use that directly to increase revenue by creating new products that never existed before? Can I use that data in a way that we've just discussed with from an operational perspective? And, and operations here is not just the technology operations, it's the operations of the bank or, or the, or the organisation to drive you know, enhanced or further operational efficiencies that I'm not able to do at the moment. So I think we're seeing lots of those conversations. And because of that, let's be clear, you can monetize all of that. You can create a value of that internally within your organization. And that's where lots of organizations are moving. And then how do I govern that? <laughs> so I've now got this vast, I mean, I love the term data lakes and all those wonderful terms, right? You know, how, how do I govern that? 
you know, who does what, where, when, what's the policies, what's the procedures, who can control it, who can access it, you know, how do I know it's accurate, how do I know it's complete, how do I know it's not been manipulated, you know, what are the standards, what's the security, you know, what, who can use it, what's the compliance regulations regard it, and that's where we've seen those conversations lean into over the past, really, I would say three years in earnest, and now you've got organizations that have got a super fuel that says, you know, I can pour this data into this AI model, or I can pour this data into this new product development, and it will enable us to go better, faster, and meet more demands than we've ever done before. And I think that's where the organizations are headed. For me, I kind of finding it interesting about what a traditional bank, if we can call it that, is allowed to do with their data mm. versus what a fintech just gets on and does with their data. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I kind of remember going back years, doing my Chartered Institute of Bankers exams. And what, and it was very clear, it was very clear back, I think it was foundation stage or something, that retail banks weren't allowed to look at what the transaction was for, just that a transaction had taken place and there was a responsibility to make sure that it could be it could be serviced within the balance of the account or the overdraft facility of the account. Not that you could see that that was going to be going into a credit card payment with, with a different party and you could now do something where you can put together all of your credit card payments or all of your payments to all the various subscriptions you've got and then present that data back to the customer for them to do something smart with it. It didn't, it didn't seem that that was allowed but you know you look at look at the state of the market now there's a lot of value added without naming names i think what you now see in the broader industry is that people are more interested in the data and how they can adopt that data and drive that data and utilize that data and monetize that data than they are of creating revenue from product <laughs> right because the data is worth more so you know that I, that that's the flip from if you're a CEO within a reasonable sized you know financial services company you know the the overhead of regulation and what that means is probably feeling like it's an unfair you know playing field by comparison to some of the new companies that are coming to market yeah yeah absolutely let's kind of move on to a topic that that we've talked about quite a few times and that's the kind of like that the people side so, you know, we've talked a lot about people, process and technology in the past, but is that something that's still up there or is it really back into being, yeah, the conversation is all about cost now and don't worry about all the other stuff? I don't think you can do anything without people, right? Let's just, let's, let's just be, let's be clear. So the, 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 yeah, every, every organisation is looking at the retention of its talent. How do I attract new talent in? How do I you know, build that capability and retain people and motivate them and develop them in new skill sets that are emerging? So you know, people, process, and technology is still very, very much part of that core conversation. I think that there are two bookends now that exist that people didn't necessarily discuss. And I always talk about these two, right? The culture and the operating model. So you know, what's the culture like in the organization? Are they able to attract people into that organization because it seemed to be the right culture to work in? Or are they losing out on talent because they're not seen to be the right culture to work in? So you and I spoke to you know, Claire Louise some months ago, and she was talking about diversity and inclusion and, you know, and a certain specific, she didn't name individual, who wouldn't join a company because that individual didn't feel that the culture was right for her. So you know you can have people processing and technology at the the bare mechanics, but if you can't attract people in, or if you're not operating in a cultural environment that is sustainable, and and the implications on the operating model, then then you know you've got a problem. And th- and this is where. I think banking organisations and financial services organisations generally said they want to be fintech. Well, just saying you want to be a fintech is not is not good enough. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, yeah. Nor is it having just you know not to be the other the other extreme. Nor is it having you know hammocks and and pool tables and you know skittles. That doesn't work either. <laughs> right? it, you know, it, culture. You you need to be able to feel the culture. You, you really really do. 
Otherwise, you're not going to you're not going to retain talent. So I I kind of just mentioned there about cost and stuff. So and maybe I'm maybe I am saving the biggest to last. So cost pressures are back. It's a big part of the conversations. It's kind of always been there, as Joe pointed out. You know, costs always been one of the one of the parts of the conversation. But but through the pandemic, it seemed to be yeah, don't worry about the cost. We're worrying about the the function or the service. So, you know, with cost conversations taking place now, you know, is there light at the end of the tunnel or is it just an oncoming train? So cost is interesting because I think what we saw and what we evidenced through the pandemic, and I'm not going to labour that conversation, was a lot of companies suddenly said, we need to do this. We need to, we need to amplify and burst in terms of, you know, our digital transformation and do all the things that we said we would do, but we, we laboured, we, ne- we now need to do them. If you look at the marketplace, that's great. You're not going to see the swing back into the high street necessarily for some types of products and services. It's all gone digital. The market forces are different now because they're external market forces. There's a lot going on in the world that we need to go into in more detail. But that's that's impacting a lot of organisations across many industries around inflation, the cost of borrowing. How does the cost of borrowing impact their revenue? You know, we talk about positive jaws, right? The impact of increased revenue in reducing costs. And if they cross the wrong way, that's not necessarily a good thing. The cost of undertaking some of these type of activities, the, the pressures now to show not immediate returns, but to be very, very clear about the types of returns that companies want and need to see to recover their costs from their investment. So cost pressures... No one wants to feel that they're paying more for something or it's costing more to do something or understanding where their costs are. Understanding your cost base is obviously very, very important and understanding the levers that you can apply within your cost base is crucial. We're now seeing those conversations just come back a little bit more than we have done over the past, let's say, 24 months. And that's all around the external factors. We're not going to have as much money to invest. And if we are going to invest it, we need to satisfy these type of criteria. And that's the difference. Um, normally in these shows, I have a co-host who makes sure they ask all the intelligent questions. So if you were the co-host on this show, what would you be asking you right now? What would I be asking me? Other than, you know, karaoke or okay, ice cream. Karaoke or ice cream. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's about, you know, what, what do you see over the next 12 months? What do you see over the next 12, 18 months? Okay, so on the horizon then, you know, short-term horizon, next day, next 12 months, what, what do you see happening? So that's, <laughs> that's, a, good question, that's right? a really good question, Matthew. I'm so glad you asked me that one. But what I, what I really wish I'd done is prepared an answer for it. So, so I think over the next 12, 18 months, so we, we've just think, finished talking about costs. So I, I don't doubt that costs will play you know, a, a role in investment over the next 12, 18 months. What we can see and we see moving, and this is evidence through discussions with our customers more than anything else. And we, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask our customers, what's changed over the past 18 months? But I'm now going to ask them, what do you predict for the next 18 months? Because they'll be able to answer this much better. But <laughs> that whole swing from you know, we like public cloud, but I think public cloud has got a specific set of use cases for us as an organization. But I need to go faster. And actually, I think I can go faster by doing multi-cloud. Now, that's not to say, you know, public cloud is not the right answer. But the realization is that you have to have a multi-cloud capability to prove resiliency and redundancy. And the regulators are getting smarter. There is absolutely no doubt that the regulator is learning quickly and very intently around the hyperscalers, what hyperscalers offer, and the implication of the hyperscalers in the marketplace. And I don't mean concentration risk, because everyone can define that in their own different way. So... I think you're going to see cost. I think you'll see more and more companies move into a multi-cloud, private cloud capability, even where they've gone public because of the resilience and requirements. I think we're going to see much more intervention from the regulators. And I, you know, I, my view is that overall, you know, the industry will will sell, you know, 
it's an old phrase, isn't there? It's calm seas doesn't make for good sailors. So I think the industry will sail through the choppy waters that's that's ahead, and there will be you know, a constant push to do the right things and the right you know undertakings with respect to technology and innovation and chat GPT and all those and all those great things. And each organization will work out from all those ingredients what type of cake it's going to bake over the next 18 months. But what will differentiate them, and I'll come back to the comment I made at the beginning, what will differentiate customers is those that are able to execute. That's the real key. So you spent your career on the buy side. You're now on this side. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been your biggest learning? What's my biggest? I I had a number of, of, of learnings. So... One of the reasons I, I chose to come out of the, the buy side and, and come to a company like VMware was because I wanted to really, I wanted to leverage what I knew, what my experience was in, in, in a way that I wasn't able to do when I worked in the industry, ironically. I wanted to learn more about how technology really does drive an outcome. I was slightly surprised that, you know, not just VMware, and I'm being very candid here, we're great at building horizontal products. That's what we've done, and that's our, our lifeblood. But the industry is moving. You know, We need to build capabilities that are relevant to our customers, and our customers are not necessarily always the infrastructure folks that they have been historically. They're, they're, there's a changing sort of persona now. So we, we need to talk much more readily in a language that's relevant to the industry in order to be relevant and in order to have something that resonates with our customers. So, you know, that's part of what I do and, and the team does here at VMware. But, you know, I, I, I've been very, very pleasantly surprised by the culture of coming out of the, you know, it's not, I don't work in sales directly, so I don't see the pressures from sales in that direct way. But, you know, I, I've been here for just over three years and, you know, I still get up every morning and enjoy what I do. So then, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, my last question here, and, you know, by way of a bit of a plug for you, for your team, what are you working on right now? Uh, and what are you looking for partners and customers to reach out to you and connect with that they could get involved in? We're, we're really kicking into this, our financial year just kicked off, so we're doing all of our usual stuff in terms of planning. We are working, you know, tirelessly to work with a specific number of ISVs and develop new ISV relationships to create those business outcomes that we talked about and responding to, you know, the business need, not just the, the technology need. So, you know, whether that be around risk and regulated cloud, whether that be around the whole conversation, which we haven't discussed, which is all around ESG and sustainability and, and green banking and ethical banking. And obviously, we're, we're, we're well underway and, and more will come over the next few weeks and next few months, or, uh, specifically to our advancements with MLOps and some of the ISVs in that space. So if anyone's listening, and they've got an interest in that, or or even if they disagree, and I, I quite like being controversial and saying, well, actually, if you don't agree with me, that's just as good a conversation. And if you, Or if you feel that we're off the mark in terms of what we're doing, then please feel free to reach out to me. The team is geographically spread. We're spread from Sydney and Australia through Europe into the US. You know, lots of industry experience because we've, most of the team, if not most of the team, yes, actually have got, you know, that buy-side knowledge that, gives us the edge so you know we understand the industry and we understand you know what makes it the industry it is it's not it's not any more special than healthcare for example or retail or government they will have their own you know particular ways of working but we know our industry very very well so let's do our crystal ball then brian i see the future really well what do you have a crystal ball what's gonna happen Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. You know the question that's coming. What do you think is going to be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2023 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I'm going to cheat slightly, all right? Because I don't think it's... There is no silver bullet, okay? So what's going to really fundamentally change or 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 be able to be leveraged in financial services. It's not just 
chat GPT or, or any AI type capability, but it's the combination of things that will really drive. So if you can, if you can marry that capability to have cloud-based services that connect seamlessly in a secure way with AI type type services that connect seamlessly with the likes of quantum computing that then connect with your blockchain type capability. The value is in the interconnectivity and the integration of those products and services. It's not any one of those in isolation. So, you know, if you had that, you could probably white label KYC and AML and sell it as a service, which most banking organizations would take because they consider it to be a pain <laughs> so so for me it's it's being bolder in in that type of view you know some of the, the well-known technology companies i think are playing with that but are yet to get anything that's near showtime or industrial strength and be anything even close to a poc but my estimation would be if you look at some of the hyperscalers and what they're trying to do that's the path they'll go down they'll bring all those wonderful technologies together and they will create that capability that that is required in the marketplace a most efficient effective you know automated data rich way that that you know banks will be interested in okay let's go have some fun the bit you've been yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. All right, you know the rules. I know the, I know uh, the rules. Thank fast, you, Matthew. I know the rules. <laughs> fast, fast and fun. It's okay to pass, but oh my goodness, we will have some fun with you outside of the call if if you pass on anything. So let's make a start. Favorite book or movie? Favourite book is Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know by Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Favourite one-day getaway location? Norfolk Coast. If you had a time machine, would you go back or into the future? I'd go back. I'd go back. Okay, nice. Uh, So this is a question my uh, co-host always asks. First concert or live performance you saw? First concert or live performance? I'm pretty sure... Please say Shaking Stevens. No, it wasn't Shaking Stevens. Do you know what? I think it was... um, I'm pretty sure it was The Clash in london oh okay wow that's a name you don't hear often now last concert or live performance you saw last concert or live performance elbow we live in a sort of semi-rural area that's not where it's rural it's nothing semi about it at all it's rural and there's a place called audley house which is a national heritage trust place over not very far from us and they hold summer concerts so we talk we we go so so the last one i went to was um was uh, elbow, but I, I'm, I'm a I'm a I've done Glastonbury a number of times, so I, I, I'm always out in the rain. <laughs> okay, I thought you were going to say Simple Minds. Do you know I elbow with the night after Simple. I sim, I saw I saw Simple Minds. They, they, they were there at the same weekend, but I did the Friday night and the Saturday night because. Oh, there you go. There I'm you a go. super nerd. All right. There you go. You are there. Yeah. You go. Uh, favorite place of all the places you've travelled. Oh, that's really hard. That's that's. Yeah, you know, that's really hard. <laughs> I really love Cape Town. I really love the West Coast of the US. But I was very fortunate to take a week's break up in Scotland, and it never rained. Oh wow! During the two COVID lockdowns, so there were no tourists, and we had the most wonderful, wonderful time being out in the open. So I, the, the one that sparks to mind is um, is Scotland. Surprisingly enough. Wow. Okay. Favourite gadget or piece of technology? I'd have to say my iPhone because I've got so much music on it, I'd be lost without it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Who's been your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? So there was a guy I worked for years ago called Chris Toon who came to work when I worked in the telco industry. And Chris, Chris was just, you know, we can do that. He had this ability to say, we can do that. And he was exceptional. I was considering studying for an MBA once and I was on a flight home with him from the States. And I told him I wanted to study for an MBA. And he said, I'd rather take someone with 10 years experience. You've got 10 years experience. You don't need an MBA. And I was like, okay, I'll put, I'll put that on the back boiler. Um, <laughs> and there was a, a fabulous, she became CIO at Morgan Stanley. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Maura Kilcoyne. She hired me at, at Morgan's and she was 
one of, if not the most exceptional leaders that I've ever had the good grace to be in a room with. What piece of career advice do you wish you'd given your younger self other than you should get an MBA? What piece of career advice would you give myself? You don't have to know the answer. Okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. What's your comfort food? <laughs> All of it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> my sushi. Sushi's my go-to, to be fair. Sushi. I, I, oh, that's there the, you go. So, when I, so, the story there is when I, when I went to live in Japan many, many years ago, I was really not f- fond of any fish. And after a year in Japan and you basically don't eat cooked fish, you have no choice. So, yeah, so I, you know, from then on it was um, sushi. And, and, you know, here's my food of choice. One of my favourite questions, last time you used cash, when and what for? Yeah. <laughs> I've got some cash in my wallet. I know that much. I can't remember. I think the last time I used cash, I, I, only because I had cash in my wallet, was I I was in a like a, a local cafe in the one of the villages, and I paid cash in there. But you know they did they did take you know <laughs> swipe, but um, yeah, I just used the cash. What's one thing that we can steal from you as a great idea? Great idea. Spend more time listening. Okay. No, now that that's that sounds a bit trite, but you know, as I've got older, you know, active listening is a really good skill set. You'll be amazed what you hear when you try and listen to people. And not just the words, but the whole, the, the rhythm of what they say, how they say it, determining whether they're passionate about something, listening to, you know, you know feeling stuff out as part of that, of that narrative. Listen. I have two more sensible questions and two more silly questions. Okay. So I'll go sensible first. What's your most memorable technology experience and why? You mean in terms of a, a specific like home type technology, or 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 just yeah, any- you can interpret the question any way you like? Because norm- normally we don't kind of we, we just randomly um, ask them. Right? I, I think one of the things that blew my mind was when I first put on a VR mask. Okay, because I because and you see these lots of things right in people running into screens and smashing things. It's you just lose your sense of where you are because you're suddenly truly submerged. So. I mean, one of the things that, yeah, that the first time I ever really looked at it, went into a sort of put a, a VR mask on and, and, yeah, that was exceptional. If you were an ice cream, mm-hmm. what flavour would you be? Um, sushi. Sushi. Fish. <laughs> if I was an ice cream, I would probably, so what I, mm, uh, yeah, mint chocolate chip. There you go. What's the worst job you've ever had? <laughs> that we can talk about yeah, in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, there's so many ways I can answer that, but I, I'm respectful. <laughs> the worst job I ever had. So when you're an apprentice, you you know you get lots of different things to do, and it's all part of you know learning to do things to a high quality. You know, it's of a repetitive nature. So going back many many years, working in electromechanical exchanges, they used to have relay sets that were these great. I mean, they they weighed about. 15 pounds each they were highly mechanical electromechanical spin round and round and they would be on racks that would be probably 18 feet high so they were massive it was like massive thing. and you know one of the apprentice jobs was can, can you take all the top set of relays out and and clean them all and i was like really and then what you worked out was you were doing someone's saturday's overtime so that's what you know so they used to get the apprentices to clean them all and then they all the ones up high, so the supervisor couldn't see which ones are clean. Then they'd come in; they wouldn't come in at the weekend. Claim they'd done all the ones up top because they'd all been cleaned. So that was that was <laughs> it was a perilous job because they were heavy, really right. heavy, and they you know they yeah I can't this is probably politically incorrect, but I was in the, in a manhole in London, what they call deep level, so probably about thirty feet down. And I said as an apprentice, I said any. Just out of interest, because it smells of damp. I said, has anyone done a, ca- a gas test here, like you, like you learn on your course? And the guy lit a lighter. He went, yeah, yeah, we, that's the gas test. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. The canary yeah, test. Yeah, 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 something like that, yeah. Oh, my. All right, last question. You have to sing karaoke. Or what's your go-to song? So... 
the, the, the one song I would probably... So there's, there's two, all right? There's two, there's not one. So one would be Burning Love by Elvis Presley. And the other one would be A Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. And, uh, and, I, and without blowing my own trumpet, I can belt those two out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my all right well we should stop Indeed. there brian thank you i you know we'd always ask how do our listeners get in touch with you but we always mention that you're on linkedin how do people get in touch with you otherwise um, linkedin email i'm sure when this goes out we'll push it on email on, on linkedin you know I'm, i think my email address is on the bottom of these as is yours matthew so please you know reach out to me challenge my thinking please don't challenge me to a sing-off in a karaoke bar because um, <laughs> i'll yeah you will lose <laughs> that's the honest answer but yeah yeah you know, I absolutely encourage people to challenge my thinking or you know give me their opinions on things because that's the way we have a richer conversation fabulous all right thank you for your openness and candidness today really appreciate it as always brian until next time thank you very much thank you matthew keep up with brian please follow him on linkedin we'll have his link in our show notes as always if we can help you in any way please talk with your vmware account team or you can connect with us on linkedin just search for brian hayes or matthew o'neill at vmware you can follow me on twitter at matthew owen or our podcast on twitter at dbtbpod and you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com if you like our podcast and can leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.